This message by Pastor Alexander Rajiri was delivered at Faith Fellowship Church in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. For more information, please call 608-935-2655 or visit us at www.dodgevilleffc.com. verse 12 down to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, Much more those who perceive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous." Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you. So this morning we'll be doing a a message uh, that has to do with the topic of Father's Day. Now, when we did a message on Mother's Day, um, we generally for Mother's Day, I I preach a sermon on motherhood, but this past Mother's Day did a sermon on womanhood in general because of the controversy that's going on. And, um, well, felt led this time around for Father's Day to do something similar. Instead of focusing on fatherhood, um, specifically just manhood, in general. Um, but just a quick note on, on fatherhood. I think it is interesting that um, the role of fatherhood is under attack and has been attacked for many, many years from very uh, overt ways to very subtle ways. And um, you, you, the subtlety, I think, has been having more of a, an effect on society than the overt ways. And you've seen how, you know, especially in the early 90s when these movies started coming out and sitcoms coming out of these families where the father was just kind of like this bogus idiot and, and everybody you know, made these comedies out of these. And it really undermined the importance of the role of a father in many ways. And it's very subtle in the way of, I don't know if you all heard it recently, it seems like it's kind of this fad to have like dad joke contests. Anybody ever heard of a dad joke so dad jokes are apparently jokes that um, 
you know, demeans dads because they come from, they're corny, they make you cringe. I enjoyed a corny joke before I became a dad. How come all of a sudden, now that I'm a dad, it's like something I have to... And But it was interesting that um, when I, whenever I'd go to, occasionally I'd go to, because I'm too lazy to go to my bookshelf, i go to dictionary.com. And so they had this contest to submit the dad joke for, this, for the year, and there were over a thousand contributions. And basically they wanted a response to the joke, why did the dictionary cross the road? And they had all these thousands of contributions. Well, the winning one was because he wanted to visit his grammar. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, so I think it's been really um, interesting how, how the, the role of fatherhood has been undermined, attacked, and seen as demeaning. But honestly, this, it's just one branch of an attack on manhood. An attack on God-given masculinity. An attack on the role for a man. And a lot of talk has been about the way that the, the transgender movement has affected women, interestingly. You hear in the news mostly about how transgenderism, particularly when a biological male tries to be a woman and enters into professional sports as such, and the effect that that has on women, or the effect of a biological male entering into a school women's locker room and the effect that that's having on women. But what you don't hear, and listen to the, the Mother's Day message for that side of it, but what you don't hear is the way that the transgenderism movement has had an effect on men. There's been this undermining of God-given Manhood. And manhood has been seen as something disgusting, something um, revolting, something that ought to be ashamed. You should be, if you're a man, you should be ashamed of. And then they, they, they label it with this term toxic. You ever heard that term, toxic masculinity? Well, thinking and praying about this, I realize there's, there's a real there's a real nuanced, uh, there's a real, it's very, very, it's a fine line between this idea of toxic masculinity and true masculinity. Because let's be honest, a lot of men have used their God-given masculinity in toxic ways. Can we, can we admit that? Maybe, maybe the Gillette Commercial that a few years ago attacking uh, men with their with their whole remember that commercial that happened where they were attacking men as a whole trying to shame them but maybe there was a truth to what they were saying maybe there is a form of masculinity that is toxic and we should be ashamed of if it's true what does the Bible say about it. Maybe I as a man, or you men, have a quality in your life that is not what God intended for you to be as a man. What does the Bible say about that? 
And it, it was illustrated one time when, now I don't intend to keep bringing up song lyrics and secular music, but it is, it's just for the purpose of illustrating the problem in society. And so I was in Richie's implement there in Cobb, and they had the local country music station on, and I was, I don't know why I can't tune out music, it's hard for me sometimes, but the, I was listening to this country music song, found out it was by Tracy Bird, is that a guy, Tracy Bird? And he was singing a song, and I listened to the lyrics, I said, are you serious? Are you, are you serious? It was called The Truth About Men whose lyrics went something, I won't share them all, because it wouldn't be appropriate, but the lyrics I will share will give you the idea. We don't like to go out shopping. We don't care what's on sale. We want to sit with a bag full of chips watching the NFL. When you come over at halftime, you say, does this look all right? We just look you in the eye with a big fat lie and say it looks just right. Well, that's the truth about men. That's the truth about guys. We'd rather pick guitars and work on cars than work on the problems in our lives. And though we say it to you every now and then, we ain't wrong, we ain't sorry, and it's probably going to happen again. Is that what God is calling us as men to be? Certainly not. So how can we respond? We have to ask the question, what is a man? But rather than going into the intricacies of of being made in the image of God, this verse, this passage of Scripture just came out when thinking about this. And it's in Romans chapter 5. Now, what I read was very, a lot of different information flying around. And it takes takes a lot of time to go through the, the details of it. But you actually see something in this passage of Scripture that is really easy to understand. And I'd like to share with it to you. In Romans chapter 5, Paul has been talking about the difference between trying to get to heaven by fulfilling the law or receiving the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and then how we should live as a result. That's been the whole theme in Romans. And he goes on a little bit of a a parentheses tangent, if you will, between what happened when Adam sinned and what happens, and those who are connected to Adam, and what happens when Jesus Christ did not sin, and those who are connected to him, how that comes. So the, what presented to us are two men. Two men. And what we learn is that if we are connected to the one man, we will be living in a way that is not God's intention for us as men. But if we live according to the other man, we will be living as who God created us to be as men. You catch that? I'll repeat it here. Two men are presented in this passage. The one man is Adam, the first man. And those who are connected to him, men and women, but for the purpose of this message, if you as a man or I as a man am connected to Adam, there are going to be corruptions of manhood that come through us. However, the second man that comes in this passage, if we are connected to that man, the 
intention of manhood, the, the glorious masculinity that God created for men, will come through. And so what we want to do is go from the one to the other. So when asking the question, is manhood good, is manhood bad, the problem we have to address is, which man are we talking about? So let's look first at the first man, Adam. In verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Jumping down to verse 17. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Jumping down to verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And finishing in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. This one man is Adam. God created Adam and Eve to be the perfect human pair. And they were. They were good, the Bible says. In the book of Genesis, we read of how God created man in his own image, male and female, period. He created them. And Adam was given the God-given ability to do what men are called to do. That is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in order to love God, he had to love God freely. And in order to love God freely, he had to have the capacity to not love God. Because if you're forced to love God, then it is not true love at all. And so God said, Adam, I've created you. You're the best man, the perfect man, you're the first man, I'm giving you authority to have dominion over this world. Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, name the animals, I'm giving you all these tasks that men are called to do. But he said, there's one thing, Adam, that I say you will not do, and that is to eat of that tree. And Adam was fulfilling his God-given role as a man, eventually as a husband, living his life in a perfect Eden, doing what he was supposed to do, being the one true man. But then one day, the serpent came. And the serpent got to convince Adam's wife, while he was there, to eat of the apple. And Adam's wife, while he was there watching this go on, not doing anything about it, Adam's wife Eve convinced Adam to eat of the fruit. I don't know if it was an apple. To eat of the fruit. And they sinned. What we read in this passage is that from that moment, when God placed a curse on this creation, every single human being that ever came from that pair, Adam and Eve, which would be every single human being, was corrupted because of what Adam did. And that corruption has been flowing through history 
generation after generation. That's why Paul says, through one man, sin entered the world. That's why Paul says, one man's offense, death reigned through the one. That's why Paul says, as one man's offense, judgment came to all men. And that's why Paul says, as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So when it comes to masculinity, manhood, any man that has come from Adam, inherited and perpetrates a corrupted version of masculinity. Every man. And it comes on different ways. It comes out in different ways. So what we want to do for a good portion of this message is look at different ways that this God-given masculinity manhood was corrupted and see how we can bring about the better and redeem that which was lost. In your bulletin insert, and I, I don't plan on doing these entirely, I just, these, these pictures came in my mind and I wanted to illustrate it. So I found a bunch of free, uh, royalty free pictures to throw here. What you'll see is a big gray head. And that big gray head represents Adam. And any man that has ever lived from the time of Adam is found within that head. He is our head, in a sense. He was the first man, the first human. He is our head. And so within Adam are found all these different corruptions of manhood. The first, for example, we'll look at is the manipulating corruption, the manipulator. And that's illustrated in the, the guy who's kind of hunched over with a big sinister smile with his hands kind of clawed out. We see in our society that some men have the tendency to want to manipulate those around them. This tendency, this corruption is want to use others to serve their own purposes, and they will do it in deceitful and sinister ways. And so they want to have complete control on the people and, and family members and, and, and workers around them, and so they think and come up with ways that they can manipulate people's situations, manipulate people's lives in order to do that. For example, I heard of a, a man in a domestic violent situation who tried to manipulate his wife in a way to think to make her think that she was crazy. And so what he would do is he would take things in the house that were hers and he would hide them without telling her. And when she would ask, where's this? Where's that? He would, I don't, I don't know. You must, you must not be paying attention to where you put your stuff. And it would go on and on and on until all of a sudden she's doubting her own ability to think because she's going Crazy, thinking, I know I put it here. Where did it go? And he's saying, I didn't move it. You must not have your head on your shoulders. And it was flat-out manipulation, trying to manipulate her to think that she can't trust herself, therefore she has to trust him. Another example in the Bible of manipulation is Ammon, who would be the son of David. David did not have a good lineage. Ammon had manipulated by the advice of someone else. He manipulated his half-sister 
pretending to be sick. He manipulated his father, pretending to be sick, to have his half-sister come and take care of him so that he could rape her. That's not what a man is supposed to be. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 17, you shall not oppress one another or use one another, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord your God. If we as men feel this tendency to want to manipulate people around us, control people around us to suit our own ends and do it deceitfully, we're not being men. That is not what a man is. The second example of the corrupted man is found by the marionette. That's a puppet creature there who's got a little string behind him, but he's a puppet, he's a marionette. He's the complete opposite of the manipulator. You see, the marionette, rather than wanting to control everybody around him, is perfectly fine with being controlled by everyone around him. This tendency is to want to people please at the expense of true conviction or having a knowledge and, and a desire for what is right and wrong. It's uh, the man who has no backbone, has no real convictions of his own, but only wants to be controlled by others so that he feels he's not responsible. Others are. He prefers if others make decisions for him rather than making decisions for his own. And you would think that people who are elected to positions of authority would be the ones who have the strongest backbones and have the deepest rooted convictions of right and wrong representing their elected um, their, their uh, citizens. But often the case, people in positions of authority tend to be nothing more than marionettes and puppets to those who have very large purses. That's not what a man is supposed to be. You look in the book of, uh, I believe it's 2 Samuel, again, the grandson of King David, Rehoboam. After Solomon was out of the scene, Rehoboam came up there and he asked the advice of the older, wiser men, Note this, young men in the room here. Rehoboam asked the advice. He was a young king. He needed advice. He asked the advice of the older, wiser men. I need help. I don't know what to do. How should I lead these people? And the older, wiser men, they said, what you need to do is tell the people that you're there to serve them. That you're there to serve them. And they will serve you. And then Rehoboam decided to talk to his buddies around his age, the friends who he likes to hang out with and go pick figs with and all that stuff. And he said, what do you guys think I should do? And, assumingly wanting to be cool and not gain their, their scorn, not, not receive their scorn, they said to him, you tell the people, my father whipped you with whips, I'm going to whip you with scorpions. And so Rehoboam, succumbing to the influence of his friends, peer pressure, being a puppet, said to the people, I'm going to be double as harsh as my father was to you. And what happened? The kingdom split. And there was utter chaos in the kingdom since then. Brothers, we are not to be puppets. 
We are not to be marionettes. That is not what a man is. A man is a man who stands firm on what is true, makes decisions based on truth and what is right and honorable. We take advice where advice comes. We seek advice from God the counsel. But we don't let the power and influence of others sway us to doing what is wrong in order to please them. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. The third corruption that we see is represented in the guy in the bottom right-hand corner who's he's just got his trophy and he's just holding it up there and just kissing it away. He's the macho man. You see, there is a form of corruption of godly masculinity that sees masculinity as an objectively beautiful thing. But rather than using that masculinity to draw attention and give glory to God in whose image he was made, he uses his masculinity to draw attention to himself. And it comes out in different ways, but his, his goal in life is to get people to see how great and how manly he is. And to be impressed by him, rather than using his strength to draw attention to God. We need to be honest. There is a glorious thing to manhood and masculinity. But the reason why it's glorious is it because it represents the God who we were made to glorify. Good example in the Bible is Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the, the world. And he stood before his kingdom and his glory and his splendor, and he just reveled in how excellent he was. Well, God had to teach him a lesson. And he went from the glorious position of the king, the Mufasa of the ancient world, if you will, to eating grass like the cattle and sheep. He had to humble him to recognize that God gave him that wealth. God gave him that authority, and he was usurping it to draw attention to himself. Men, we ought not to draw attention to ourselves to take away what is due to our great and strong and mighty God. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We affirm what God has made us as men, but we use that to point back to Him. If God makes us strong, we serve others and draw attention to Him. The next form and corruption of masculinity and manhood is pictured in the top of the mule. The mule would be a man who is stubborn, untamed, unable to be influenced or led by anyone. The man who refuses, refuses to listen to anyone, be led by anyone, he is 
going to do what he wants to do and no ifs, ands, or buts. He is, it is his way or the highway. This comes out in different ways. Sometimes it's the kind of man who refuses to hold a job, refuses to hold a relationship because he doesn't want to be tied down by anyone or anything. It comes out in different ways. Maybe he does have a position. Maybe he does have a family, but it doesn't matter. As long as he gets his way, that's all that matters. King Saul. God gave King Saul that position to be in charge of the people. And he told Saul, he said, Saul, you're king, you're not the priest, you're not the prophet, you don't sacrifice. Saul said, I'm going to kick against the goats, and I'm going to sacrifice. God told Saul, Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekite people. And Saul Rather than wiping them out as God decided, he said, I'm going to kick against the goads and I'm going to keep the spoils for myself and I'm going to keep the king alive. God said to Saul, Saul, you will not entertain the presence of sorcery and witchcraft in the land. And Saul did that at first, but then he decided to kick against the goads and consult a medium in order to find out what he should do. He was a mule. And the Bible plainly tells us in Proverbs chapter 32, verse 9, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. We as men are not mules or men to serve our king. I'll go through the next three very quickly for the sake of time. The next is the Moody Man. That's uh, depicted by the picture down below of the volcano. This is the one who is tempestuous, impatient, given to emotions, snappy, surly, morose, giddy, lustful, boisterous, proud, and self-loathing all at the same time. He's driven by impulses. God has given men a certain inner working of impulse, but they are to be according to his reins. But this individual lets them control him in his decision-making and how he handles other people. A good example of this is Samson in the Bible. Samson is, by all appearances, you know, this manly man, but in all honesty, he's not. He's weak. He's supposed to be the strong guy, but he's weak. Why? Because he's driven by his impulses. He has no control over his impulses. He sees a woman, he wants her. He goes after her. He gets angry, he just completely is filled with rage and, and throws a temper tantrum. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, You shall keep him in perfect peace, whose mind stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Men, do we let our impulses push us around and decide for us? On the opposite end of the spectrum is the man in the middle of this depiction, um, the marble man. Now, I, I just found a stock photo, photo of a, 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 a bust of a guy. He's probably some famous guy, did a lot of good. I apologize to him, but I'm trying to illustrate this. The marble man. It is the man who... Rather than being driven by emotions and impulses, 
refuses to let anything or anyone touch him or influence him, and tends to be void of one of the godliest, manliest traits in the world, and that is compassion. It is a man who has a stone-cold heart. And when he sees people being oppressed, when he sees people being hurt, if it doesn't help him, if it doesn't affect him, he doesn't care. No better man is illustrated in the Bible than Pharaoh. For the Bible says he hardened his heart against God. But Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 promises that he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And true manhood has a beating heart. Next, the masked man that's illustrated in the right-hand side of this sinister creature holding up a, a face that is a mask. The masked man is one who is pleasant and caring on the outside, but inwardly is selfish and greedy. One who gives a facade of who he wants people to see him, but inside chooses to be somebody completely different. It's the man who will be loving and caring to his family when he's at home, but when he's at work will be flirtatious with the secretary around him. It is a man who comes to church and acts pious and is illustrated by Vance Havner. The real test of your Christianity is not how pious you look at the Lord's table on Sunday, but how you act at the breakfast table at home. We put on our mask when we go to church, when we leave, we'll take it off and, and be who we really are. Judas. Three years walked with the disciples. Three years walked with Jesus. And when Jesus asked, uh, Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they all looked at each other. They said, who? They had no idea. And yet Judas, all of that time, was stealing money out of the money bag. Jesus can see past the mask of a man. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will become known. Brothers, let's be honest. We're men, but we've been infected, and we have corruptions, and we need change. Amen? Well, praise God, we have a solution. Because although the book of Romans talks about the one man that if we're connected to, these corruptions will come out, it also provides a solution. For in verse 17, if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, that's Adam, even so, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And here it is in verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. What happens is, 
you have Adam, who is the first man, the good man until he was corrupted. And then corruption came from him. But then Jesus Christ steps in as the second Adam, as the second man, and he lives his life in perfect obedience to the Father, never sinning once. And so any man who's connected to him receives from him the true life that was meant to be lived in a human being. And if the world wants to know what a man is supposed to look like, if the world wants to know how a man should live, if the world wants to know what a true depiction of masculinity is, look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect man. He's the manliest man. He's the most masculine man. He depicts everything that a man ought to be. And so we as men, all we have to do is look to Christ as our example. There's a little caveat with that. Because there's a lot of pop culture depictions of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of shows out there and movies out there and books that you could read that depict Jesus Christ as he would have walked and talked and lived on this earth. And in my estimation of what I've seen, 90% of them are junk and do not depict Christ as he's represented to us in the Bible. And most of the time, in, in what I've seen, Jesus Christ is depicted as effeminate, the complete opposite of who he's meant to be, a man. When you read in the Gospels of how Jesus interacted with those around him, you see a perfect harmony of all the qualities of what a man is supposed to be. And so here it is. When you and I as men... Look to Christ, trust in Christ, connect ourselves with Christ. What happens is Jesus comes and His manhood comes and, th and flows through us. Suddenly we are transformed to be the men God has called us to be. We are transformed to be the fathers God has called us to be. We are transformed to be the husbands that God has called us to be. And so when you look there, you see the, the gray Adam comes in through Christ down below and through Christ is remade to be the man God called him to be. So instead of manipulating those around us, we as true men influence others for good, not deceitfully, but openly. We pass on the baton to the younger generation. We influence our, our wives and our children and our churches to do what is good and right and follow God's ways. That's true manhood. The puppet, the marionette is false, but through Christ, we rather than being a puppet being controlled by others, we have control as God controls us and we serve others. We see the needs of those around us, and so rather than, than bending ourselves and our convictions, we stand on our convictions to help others and to serve others and to see a need and to fill it, to see a gap in the wall and stand in it. 
Rather than drawing attention to ourselves through our God-given masculinity, we take that strength and we draw attention to God and we use our God-given strength for Him. Spending our energy and our time to do His will. Rather than being stubborn to doing our own way, we're stubborn against evil, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, I will not bow down to your image. That's true stubbornness. That's manly stubbornness. And that's what we want as men. We want to be firm against that, those ungodly influences in our lives. Satanic temptations that come, we say, no, I'm going to kick against those goads. But when God comes and says, you, I need you to do this and fill this need, we say, yes, Lord, I'm your servant. You've got my reign, but I'm not going to let somebody else ride on me. When we come to Christ, rather than being like the the tempestuous volcano of impulses, we let God rein our impulses in to unleash them when they are to be unleashed. For example, Jesus Christ, He came into the temple and He saw that the church was corrupted because people were making money and profit off of the poor in the, in the temple church. And what did he do? He was filled with a righteous indignation. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He put together a whip and started whipping people out of the place. And he was righteous for doing that. And there's a time, men, when we need to explode for what is right. But it's all under the reign of His Holy Spirit so that it's used in the right way. Our passions are good, but they're meant to be used in their context in the right place when God wants us to unleash them. Or then the stone-cold man in the middle is the opposite. Rather than letting our emotions completely dominate us, we allow the Spirit to have a good head on our shoulders, to be wise and and rational to the world around us. Being able to analyze things as they come our way before they influence our decision-making. That all comes when we connect ourselves to Christ. You look at how Christ answered questions to people who came and they tried to trick Him, and He wisely responded in a way that made them doubt their own motives. Oh, you looked at the masked man. Is there a good version of a masked man to be a hypocrite? Absolutely not. But, but, I want you, and this one's important, guys. We need to be aware that there may be somebody else that God is bringing into our life that we can glean from and learn from and seek to mimic. There may be a godly influence that God has brought into our lives that could be a role model. It's not that we're putting on a mask being somebody that we're not, but that we're gleaning those good qualities from others around us and seeking to be like that. I have, in my life, I've had men who, not that they personally came to me and and tried to say, I want you to be like me, but just their example of how they lived. I looked to them and I, as a young man and a young Christian, I saw there's something there that I want. There's a, there's a love for God there that I want and I want to be like that. 
God, help me glean to be like that. And the more we're connected to Christ, the more discernment we have to see those qualities. There is a place in the church for godly men leading and being examples to others. So here it is, brothers. When we connect ourselves to Christ, when we believe in Christ, what God does is He takes us, men of Adam, and changes us to be men of Christ. He takes us men with corruptions and makes us to be men of God. He takes us to be men who want to please ourselves and makes us to be men who want to please our Lord. And there is no greater example of godly masculinity, manhood, than found in the man of God. So is masculinity toxic? Well, it depends. What's the truth about men? The truth is this. We're fallen. We've sinned. We're corrupt. But we have received from God grace. And that grace redeems what is broken. And we, through the power of God, can seek to be a true man. Amen? For the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us as men to be open to you, Father, about which qualities in our lives have been tainted by Adam. And show us how we can come to you to be remade into true men. I pray, Father in heaven, that you would please redeem us. That we would be examples to our culture. This culture needs true men. But it has to start with the man in the mirror. Help us, Father. Show us who Christ is. How he wants to live through us. How he wants us to step up and stop trying to preserve our own selves, but to give our lives knowing that we will gain it in the end. I pray if anyone here this morning has not received the man Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that they would call upon Him for salvation. They would confess their sins and receive from Your hand the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us or abandoned us to our own corruption, but you have saved us. Use us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.